If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. It is where we will be spending our time in the evenings. Ruth is near the beginning of your Bibles in the Old Testament, in historical books. And I'd ask if you'd please stand as we read our scripture for this evening. It is the entire first chapter of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go... I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, 
and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would attend your word with power. For your word is life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Ruth is a very interesting book. It's a short book. It's really almost a vignette. It doesn't even qualify as a story because it's so short. And one of the things that's very interesting about Ruth is that it has been put in different places in the Bible. You know, the order in which our books that we have is not necessarily original. At different times, the Hebrews have put them in different orders for different reasons. And Ruth is probably the best example in all the Old Testament of this. For example, Ruth comes in our Bibles after the book of Judges. Makes perfect sense. The first sentence we read was, In the days when the judges ruled. So it's happening at about the same time. But at other times, Ruth has been placed before the Psalms because of the connection of Ruth with David. We'll find out more about that in weeks to come. But another place in which Ruth has been put is right after the book of Proverbs. And you may at first glance say to yourself, well, why would they put Ruth after Proverbs? Until I ask you, what is Proverbs 31? You would say in your head, that's the virtuous woman. Her price is above rubies. Who can find her? And the answer, of course, to that question is Ruth. And the one who can find her is Boaz. And so what we'll be looking at in weeks to come are two things. First, there is a great story of redemption that runs through Ruth. We'll be talking about the kinsman redeemer. We'll be talking about the work of the Lord in redeeming his people to himself. But in a very real sense, too, there's a practical line of Ruth. The book of Ruth shows us what it means to be a woman of honor and to be a man of honor. For that same title, that same Hebrew word is used of Boaz in this book. He is a man of honor. And so this evening I'd like us to begin with a bit of an overview looking at this first chapter. And what I'd like us to see is not exactly Ruth. I'd like us to start by looking at Naomi and how God deals with her in her circumstances to reveal his redemptive power. And so what I'd like us to see this evening are three things. First, I'd like us to see the disobedience of Elimelech and his family and God's judgment that results from it. And after we look at that disobedience, I'd like us to see Naomi's decision to walk by sight not by faith. And after we see that, we'll look at the deliverance of Naomi's family by the visit of God. So we'll see disobedience, and then we'll see a decision to walk by sight, and then we'll see deliverance by the visit of God. Well, let us look then, beginning here at chapter 1 and verse 1. The story begins by setting itself in a context. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, 
That should mean something to you all. If you know anything from Sunday school days and vacation Bible school, remembering the time of the judges. This is more than just saying four score and seven years ago. This is not just a time context. It's a theological context. It's a situational context. Because if there's one verse that epitomizes the time of the judges, it's what? That last verse. That there was no king in Israel, and every man did what? What was right in his own eyes. That's the big picture. That's the big context. And this story of Ruth, the author brings to us a very personal example of that. Because there's a man. His name is Elimelech. And interestingly enough, Elimelech means God is my king. That's what his name means. If you don't know so already, you should get used to the fact that in the Old Testament, in the days of the Israelites, you didn't just get a name. Your name meant something. Your name was meant to describe the faith of your family or the hopes that your parents had for you. You get a name like Joshua, the Lord saves. You get a name like Moses, drawn out of the water. But here Elimelech's name is God is my king. So it would seem that Elimelech should not be like the others who dwelt in the land of Israel at the time of the judges. But the problem is, is that first sentence goes on and belies what happens. It says that there's famine in the land. And this man, this Elimelech, goes to journey, to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, you need to know something else in terms of context. For Israel... Famine was not just a matter of bad weather. It was not just a matter of Katrina rolls in or doesn't come in. Because the Lord had promised, before they had entered the land, to bless them if they kept covenant, and to curse them if they had broken covenant, and had walked not in His ways, and ceased to believe in Him, and ceased to honor Him. And one of the specific ways that he described, he would chastise them. He would remind them that he was king, was by sending a famine into the land. He says this specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So this famine is a result of sin in the land. And that shouldn't surprise us, because the cyclical pattern of the book of Judges is, Israel prospers, they turn to sin, they turn away from God, God sends a people to chastise them. They cry out for mercy. He sends a deliverer. Things get good again, and it starts over and over again. So it's not unusual that in the time of the judges, sin would be seen. Now, you need to remember that not all sorrow comes as a result of disobedience, right? We have an entire book of the Bible that teaches us that. Job. But there is something to be said that if God says... If you are unfaithful, if you disobey me, I will send curses upon you to remind you that I am God and to draw you back to myself, that that happens. And so what happens is Elimelech, God is my king, goes and he sojourns in Moab. Now if you think about it, the proper response to a famine caused by sin would be to repent, would be to seek the Lord. To seek his mercy and a release from the famine. But rather than repent and seek God, Elimelech tries to figure out his own solution. 
And what he says he's going to do is he's going to go over to this place where the land is green in Moab. And he's got a plan figured out because the text says specifically that he sojourned in the country of Moab. And the Hebrew word there is a word that describes when you go to be in a place for a specific short period of time expecting to come back. So he thinks, I'll just go hang out in Moab for a while, make sure I can feed my family, then when things get better, I'll come back. You see, Elimelech is right off the bat fooling himself as to the depth of his choice to leave God's covenant people, to leave the promised land, and to go someplace that the Lord had said they should not go. Moab was a place of the Canaanites. It was a place of the godless. It was a place that they were not to mingle with, not to intermarry. And Elimelech says, well, I understand that God said that, but I know the situation, and I think I can handle it. And so he goes off with his family for what he thinks is a short trip. And if you thought the three-hour tour of Gilligan's Island was short, and then turned into a long stay, this short sojourn becomes, the text tells us, ten years. Day goes by day, week by week, month by month. And time just slips away from Elimelech's family. That can happen to us, can't it? We say, well, we're going to start really committing ourselves to prayer tomorrow. And then something comes up. And it's the next day. Well, I'll start reading my Bible next week. And just time just rolls right over us. And before you know it, as in our personal case, a month has passed. Wow, we've been here a month. It just rolls quickly. And for Elimelech, that's what happens. And you see, particularly, the choice of Moab was particularly bad for him. I can just cite a couple of things that you probably, again, know from Bible story days. Do you remember Balak, the king who hired Balaam to curse Israel? Guess where he was from? Moab. Do you remember the wives that intermarried with Israel and turned them away from God to false gods? Numbers 25. Do you know where they were from? Moab. Do you remember one of the groups that oppressed the Israelites in the very book of Judges? Judges chapter 3. Guess who they were? Yes, Moabites. This is not exactly a theologically neutral choice. And so they go there. This is something we need to think about. As we make choices, we often tend to rarely think about the impact that our choices have upon our ability to raise a Christian family, to provide opportunities for spiritual growth in our family. The decisions that we make affect us and our ability to commune with the Lord. Well, Elimelech and his family go, and they sojourn in Moab, and they begin to live in Moab. And the text puts it this way. It says that they go into Moab, and in, uh, where am I here? in verse 2, it says they went into the country of Moab and remained there. And the Hebrew is, is pretty, quite emphatic. They didn't just go and visit there. They didn't go and set up house and live there. There's a word for settle. They were just there. They just had existence. They were the definition of spinning your wheels. They just happened to be there. 
They were aimless. They were purposeless. And that time that they were in Moab brought about more disobedience. Because what do they do? Their sons marry Moabite wives. Now, you might be able to argue that they didn't see the providence of God in the famine. But they had the explicit command of God not to intermarry with Moabites. Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 23 both state this. They were not to intermarry with Canaanites. And so what happens is one incident of disobedience leads to another. And as a result of this, Elimelech dies. And his sons die. And in the space of a half of a verse, Naomi's world collapses around her. Now, I want you to think about this. If you were a woman living in the ancient Near East, you had no skills, at least not to earn money. You had no one to protect you. There were no police forces. You needed a husband or male relatives to protect you, to provide for you. And now in one fell swoop, Naomi is a stranger in a strange land with no husband, with no sons, and two other mouths to feed. That's quite a daunting thing that would face her. And so I think we need to keep that in mind, lest we become too harsh with Naomi's reaction. Because she's faced with a very trying set of circumstances. And so what happens to her is, in verse 6, she arises with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so now we are looking at Naomi's decision that she makes. It's a decision that comes by sight, not by faith. What do I mean by that? Well, in the middle of her circumstances, a remarkable thing happens to Naomi. The grace of God breaks into her midst. Do you see what that verse, verse 6 says? She's in Moab. And two things happen. First, the Lord visits his people and gives them food. And then secondly, he brings word of that to Naomi in Moab. What a gracious God. Not only does he visit his people, he brings specific word of that to a family that has been disobedient, that has cut themselves off from the covenant people of God, that are wandering in a strange land. This Visit is not like when you have out-of-town guests. It's the Lord drawing near to his people. There's two examples of that, specifically, that I think will help us to understand it. The first is, you remember the story in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites are oppressed, and they cry up to God. And Moses tells us in the book of Exodus, in chapter 4, that the Lord visited his people. He came down to redeem them. The New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, says that the Lord is blessed. Blessed be the Lord of Israel, for he has visited, now I want you to hear the connection, and redeemed his people. You see, this visitation is the Lord intervening in the lives of his people, including Naomi. But you see, Naomi has a problem. She makes this decision here by sight, not by faith, because she is blinded by grief. 
You see, she still finds it difficult to apprehend what's happened by faith. And so she does two things that add to her own bitterness, which is what often happens when we act by sight and not by faith. We become our own worst enemies. And so she does two things. The first thing that she does is she exaggerates the good that can come apart from God. And then the second thing that she does is she exaggerates her own hopelessness. Do you see that? Orpah and Ruth come to her and she says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. And she says, May the Lord grant you rest. Now think about what she's saying. She's saying, ladies, go find rest outside of God. Go back to the land of your fathers. And she actually says later, to your gods. She says to them, your life would be better off if you went back and had a husband and no God than if you had God and no husband. Do you see how she's exaggerating the good that can come from outside of God? And one of the reasons I think she does that is she exaggerates her own hopelessness. She has this interesting story to us that where she says, you know, what are you waiting for me to have more sons? If I were married tonight, what are you going to do? Hang around for 20 years till they're old enough to marry you? I can't give you any more husbands. She's implicitly saying, I'm beyond hope. She's been crushed by her circumstances. And there's a sense in which we can readily identify with her. She's lost everything. Husband, sons, home, security. She feels hopeless. She feels that she has nowhere to turn, nothing to give. She's going to go back, but she's not going back by faith. You almost get the impression she's going back to die. She's given up. That can happen to us sometimes, can it? You know, I find it interesting that sometimes, myself included, we tend to see more hope in sports than we do in God. You know, desperate situations. I remember driving back through Canada after visiting Deb on a Saturday afternoon, listening to a Buffalo Bills game, in which at the first half the Buffalo Bills were down 24 to nothing. And the only reason I kept listening was because I was in the car and had nowhere to go and nothing else to put on. Well, that day, the Bills staged the greatest comeback in the history of professional football. Okay? A couple of years later, I watched on television the Cleveland Indians staged the greatest comeback after seven innings in baseball history. And we sort of had that sense, don't we, when we're watching our team. Well, you never know what will happen. Never say die. It isn't over till the fat lady sings. We've got all of these sayings. But yet with God, we're so quick to say, God can't help us now. We're beyond grace. We're beyond help. But you see, Naomi may have thought that. But God is not going to leave her there. You see, her focus is not on God, but on herself and on her circumstances and on the judgments that God has brought that's why she says in verse 20, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, if we were to end our story here, it would not make for a good Hollywood movie. It's a sad ending. We're 
gripped with pain for Naomi. This woman who's been through so much. But you see, the Lord encourages not only Naomi, but encourages us in this story, because the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with Naomi's bad decisions. Because what follows is deliverance by the visit of God. And the interesting thing is that God visits Naomi first in the most unlikely of persons. In a widowed Moabite woman. This is someone, Ruth, who is at about the lowest end of the social scale that you could possibly imagine. She's a widow, she's a woman, and she's a non-Israelite. She's a pagan. And what God does is he clings to Naomi through Ruth. Ruth clinging to her. You see, even after Orpah leaves and goes back to her gods and her people, it says that Ruth clings to Naomi. That word clings should ring in your ears, those of you that have taken wedding vows. Because you remember in Genesis where it said that a man and a woman, that a man is to cleave and to cling. He is to leave his parents and to stay with his wife, cling to his wife. They are to become one flesh. That's what's happening here in a sense. Because Ruth goes on, and the way in which she puts it, almost our English Bibles don't give it justice because it doesn't make sense in English. What she really says is, you go, I go. You live, I live. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. She's very emphatic. It's just it's staccato over and over again. She's overcome with emotion. Even though Naomi is encouraging her to leave her, Ruth stays and ministers to Naomi. She's an unlikely source of comfort. God brings his deliverance through the Moabite. Now, you remember what we just said about Moab, remember? Oppressed Israel, check. Tried to hire a prophet to curse Israel. Check. Seduced the men and tried to turn them from God. Check. Pretty bad place. Moab has its origins in the sin of Lot and his daughters. And the interesting thing is that several times, five as a matter of fact, it's not just Ruth that's mentioned. It's Ruth the Moabite. It's as if the author doesn't want us to forget who she was. She was a Moabite. She was someone that should have been looked down upon. Someone that should not have been a help. Someone that should not have had valid ministry. And yet, her ministry has eternal consequences. And so what happens is, even though Naomi doesn't want Ruth to minister to her, she tries as hard as she can to push her away, simply by clinging to her. And by showing love, Ruth wins Naomi over. That's a lesson for us, isn't it? Don't throw in the towel. Sometimes it's awfully difficult to minister to people, isn't it? They don't want to be ministered to. They don't want your help. They don't want your religion. They don't want your God. They don't want any help. They want to wallow in self-pity. But you see, Ruth clings to Naomi. 
same calling comes to us in our ministry to cling to others, to be with them. And we shouldn't forget this other thing, that as bad as Naomi's life is, as horrible as it is to be a widow, Ruth's a widow too. Ruth's life's pretty bad as well. She can identify completely with Naomi. And she uses that to minister to her. God takes a hold of Naomi. He takes a grip on her and will not let her go because she is his child. We see that clearly later in the book of Ruth, but we even see it here. Do you notice what Naomi does as she speaks? Look at verse 8. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. And verse 9, The Lord grant that you may find rest. And if your Bible's like mine, you have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That Lord, all caps, is the covenant name of God. It's not just God generically. It's the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the name that when Moses said, Who shall I say sent me? The Lord says, I am sent you. That's what name she calls God by. So she knows there's a covenantal bond. She's just trying as hard as she can to forget it because her life is miserable. And what God does through Ruth is he brings her a glimpse of hope. But do you see what happens? They come back to Bethlehem. And they come back This is the first time we're going to see it, and we're going to see it over and over again. Another theme I'd like you to think about in the book of Ruth, the providence of God. They just happen to come back at the right time. Harvest time. You notice how the author puts that right at the end? And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And we might just think, oh, okay, that's like, what what date is that? What month is that? No. They're coming back, and as they come back, they see the Lord visiting his people and delivering them by bringing them food. Hope springs immediately to Naomi and to Ruth. This is how our God deals with us. He clings to us through people. Through his people, ministering through his people by his spirit and his word. He clings to us. There's a reason why When we have the Lord's Supper, we call it communion. It's because we are all in union with Christ that we have communion with each other. And you see, Naomi needed to be reminded of that. She needed to know that there was hope. And so, as we conclude, I'd just like you to think of two things about this story. First, and this is important, If there's anyone here tonight who is not united by faith with Jesus Christ, who does not know him, not just know about him, but know him, this story is a warning. You never know when salvation is going to come to your house. It came to Orpah. She thought that a husband, some good land, were more important right now. We don't know her story. She may have gone home, found a new husband, and had a dozen children. He may have been the wealthiest, smartest man in town. But she left without God. 
And none of those things are important without God. But to those of us who are in Christ tonight, to those of us who are united with Christ, this story of Naomi calls upon us to see with eyes of faith God's providence. That God would bring a woman like Ruth into Naomi's life. And that God would bring those other circumstances, as hard as they are, to Naomi for a purpose. Because those circumstances are going to be a part of Naomi and Ruth's ministry. Those circumstances are going to be a part of the line of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which we might say that but for Naomi's misery, we would not have the richness that we have in Christ. Because it's because her husband and children die that she goes back. And she goes back with Ruth. Ruth, who will eventually be in the line of our Lord and Savior. You see, we can't see all ends. But we are called not to see everything, not to be Pollyannish, but simply to look to God and His faithfulness and to hope in Him, no matter what our circumstances are, to look by faith, not by sight. Let us pray.